Hey there, welcome to Fuss Marketing's first podcast. This is really exciting. Uh, for those of you that don't know us, Fuss Marketing is a brand and marketing strategy agency based out of the Minneapolis area. We specialize in solving problems, answering marketing questions. Uh, we kind of think of ourselves as a marketing SWAT team with tons of client-side experience. Um, so we build models uh, for our clients versus the other way around. We love brand stories, we love consumer insights, and today, we love beer. Uh, as you'll hear, a lot of us have worked in the category before, so um, we were really excited to get this group in the room and talk about um, this time period in the U.S. beer industry. But overall, we're doing these podcasts because we want it to be a resource um, of information for great brand stories, um, and hopefully allow you guys to listen a little bit and perhaps get inspired by some of the stuff that you hear. So. Thanks again for jumping on today, and, and I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks. All right, so welcome to the uh, first of what is hopefully many of the Fuss Marketing uh, podcast series. Um, we're here today with some people I'm really excited to have in the room. I'm going to begin by introducing Joe Hartung from Lighthouse Research Company. Joe, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I founded Lighthouse Research about a year ago after a 15-year career in the beer industry. Uh, Lighthouse is all about trying to help brands understand consumers' beliefs and behaviors and the broader culture in which we live. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to have you here co-hosting with me and keep us on track and follow the pathway uh, to success with this thing. So again, my name is Kevin Riley with Bus Marketing, um, and we're going to turn our attention to our special guest today, Mike Calmer from Tropolis Brand Consulting. Welcome. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for uh, making your way down to Chicago. We, uh, we couldn't have picked a worse, maybe best weather day. It's yeah. warm outside in the middle of winter, but it's also so rainy, it's just miserable outside. So thanks for uh, coming down to see us. You're welcome, happy to be here. All right, so what are we talking about today? Um, I think one of the things that um, we want to do when we started this, this podcast series was to really uh, highlight some great brand and marketing stories. Uh, I think all of us that work in this industry are kind of brand geeks at heart. I think one of the things that we constantly look for are great stories, um, not only from an inspiration standpoint, but stories that um, we can look to about industries changing and challenger brands coming up. and what happened at moments in time where we saw those hockey stick moments for great brands that we know and love. And um, we're all former uh, slash current beer guys, and uh, we love that industry, especially the U.S. beer market, which has been dramatically changing over the last 15 to 20 years. But um, one of the stories that I always uh, loved was kind of the resurgence of the beer wars, the great beer wars of the early 2000s. Um, and while it's, you know, a little bit of time ago, it's, it's still very... Um, you know, uh, new and recent regarding you know, great brand stories, challenger brands coming up, thinking about uh, a market that was highly consolidated at that point of view. Obviously, that has changed, you know, in recent history with craft brands coming in and that total resurgence, which is kind of like the second or third wave of that happening now. Um, but I think there are some really great insights and things that we can learn, um, and specifically talking about Miller Lite today, so that's why we have Mike in. And so why don't you give us a, a quick intro on you and Trumbos, and then we'll kind of dive in. Okay, I have over 30 years of experience in the beer business, including uh, several decades at Miller Brewing Company. So I, I was there for the Miller Lite turnaround that we're going to be talking about. But for the past seven years, I've been an independent consultant specializing in helping my clients develop brand positioning strategies and marketing strategies, all with a big component of consumer research and insights. So uh, 
about two thirds of my clients are breweries, but I also have a one third that I would call miscellaneous. I work with a lot of different kinds of companies now. Awesome, it's a good setup. Well, Joe, Mike, kick us off. I'm getting started with some of the questions about the early 2000s. It would be great if you could just kind of give us a lay of the land of what the beer industry was like in the early 2000s with the relative positioning and strength of some of the top brands and then how craft was starting to, to fit into the niche there. Sure. Um, and this, I'll go back a little bit even earlier because uh, basically the background is that Miller Lite Miller invented the light beer category with Miller Lite in the mid-1970s and totally dominated the light beer category until about the early 90s when Bud Light did a really smart jujitsu move on us and flipped some of our strengths into weaknesses and some of their weaknesses into strengths. And uh, as a result of that, Miller Lite had been declining for about 12 years. Uh, so what, what year is this roughly, just so we can... Uh, about 89, 90, 91. Okay, got it. Bud Light really started taking off then. And Coors Light, too. And uh, Miller had not had a lot of success in the 90s. Miller Genuine Draft had had some early success, but that faded, too. And uh, craft beer had been growing steadily. It did have some growth doldrums uh, in the mid to late 90s, but took off again in the early 2000s. So at the time we're talking about, in 2003, you've got a a Miller Brewing Company that's... uh, not doing overly well compared to its competitors. Uh, Budweiser and Bud Light were really strong. Coors Light was really strong. Uh, Craft beer was recovering from its doldrums and starting to really take off. And so it was a situation where I think the company really needed a spark of some sort. Yeah, it's an interesting transition there. So what was kind of the goal of Miller Light at the time, heading out of, uh, you know, 2000? through 2003, kind of what, what was the company looking to achieve at that point? How did they view themselves? Um, you know, what was the strength of the portfolio at that time? And maybe talk a little bit about the culture. Uh, the Miller Lite was still the strongest brand in the portfolio, but we didn't really have a lot that we can point to and say that's really a clear success. And uh, it was, a, we were really, I would say to some extent struggling. Uh, distributor relationships are a big part of a company's success in the beer business because your distributors are your partners. And the dis- distributors weren't very positive about what we were doing either. So that was, and as far as how we saw ourselves as a company, I don't think there was a clear definition. So, uh, and then that sets up 2003. Yeah. Uh, so what changes at that point? Yeah, the company had been purchased. It's, Philip Morris sold it to South African breweries and South African breweries changed their name to S.A.B. Miller. Right. Uh, and uh, shortly afterward, they brought in Norman Adamy, who had been uh, running things in South Africa, right. to be the CEO at Miller Brewing Company. And Norman was the guy who really brought a new attitude. He repaired relations with the distributors, got them really fired up. And uh, he, led by him, we developed this mantra of, we were going to be the able challenger. We knew that we were not going to overtake Budweiser or Anheuser-Busch in the foreseeable future. And that was okay, as long as we were an able challenger, that we were confident, we were going out there, and we were confronting them directly instead of taking a more passive approach. Okay. So then, the, uh, right around that time, 2003, 2004, Miller Lite went from, what, 12 years of decline to taking off, right? What, what, what was it in the campaign, in the relationships that changed, to, that led to that, um, that, that resurgence of Miller Lite? Part of it was the improved distributor relations, because most of our distributors, you have to understand, carry both Miller Lite and Coors Light. And they would generally get behind whichever brand they thought had the best advertising and marketing. 
So if uh, if Miller Lite came out with, here's what we're going to do the coming year, Coors Light came out with, here's what we're going to do the coming year, the distributors said, I think that one's going to be more successful. So they got behind it. Right. So in some ways, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. But uh, having the distributors... Right? It was, yeah, very competitive. So having the distributors on our side was a big thing. And Norman got the distributors on our side. They, they loved him. How did he do that? Uh, he, he, he listened to them. Uh, which is always a great thing to do, but he, he also he, he also he also brought that new attitude right. that you know we're not going to be passive. We are going to confront Anheuser Busch directly, Budweiser directly, and we are going to be out there fighting. And uh, so uh, we are going to relaunch the Miller trademark. And uh, to do that, that, that kind of can you explain what that is for the audience, just so what, how you would define Miller trademark? At the time, it was basically any brand that had Miller in its first name, so Miller Light, Miller Genuine Draft. Uh, to some extent, Miller High. Roughly accounted for how much of the total portfolio? Because one thing we haven't touched on is how many brands at the time period Miller Brewing Company owned and operated yeah. and their marketing dollars against. We had a lot of smaller brands, but the Miller trademark was, I'm going to say, 80 or 90% of the yeah, brands. That sounds about right. Massive. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, it was originally designed to be a Miller trademark relaunch, but it quickly turned into a Miller Light relaunch because that was the brand that dominated everyone's interest and attention and the consumer attention as well. And it had prior success, right? So there was right. a bit of a pathway there. Right. And so uh, we were going to develop a new brand positioning. And uh, we were actually we actually did an interesting thing. Uh, normally, there's an agency of record that you name for a brand. Yeah. Different agencies come in and pitch for the business. And you say, this is the one we want to work with. We like their ideas. We like their creative. We like their direction. We didn't do that. We had four agencies working on this throughout the entire period. And I got to give a lot of credit to these four agencies. It was YNR Chicago, Ogilvy & Mather, the Martin Agency out of Richmond, Virginia, and Wyden & Kennedy. And uh, a lot of agencies would have pushed back and said, no, we're not going to do this because we're not comfortable with this. But they all went along with it. Right. So every time there was a new round of creative that had to be developed, we briefed all four agencies. They all went back and came back with their ideas. And then we picked a winner for that round of creative. So in essence, the strategy um, was coming out of corporate and the management of, of all these possible inputs from different agencies was coming out of corporate. But at the end of the day, you know, one was going to be selected for certain types of creative or a campaign specifically. Right, for periods of time. Got it, okay. So, um, the, uh, basically the strategy was to uh, position Miller Lite as being an independent choice. That, you know, Budweiser and Bud Light were big brands. A lot of the people who drank those brands fairly regularly did it mostly out of habit. If you ask them why they drank it, they would say, because my friends drank it, or it's the brand I always drank. It wasn't really a very conscious decision. And that's not a weakness for a brand, that's a strength, when people buy you out of habit. Right. But we wanted to say... It's so ingrained in their day-to-day lives or their week-to-week schedule, and it's, yeah. Right. So we, our strategy was going to be, um, don't just make a passive choice, an unconscious choice. Make a conscious choice. And Miller Lite is the, the beer for people who make more active choices, who make more independent choices. So I'm interested in how you got to even that decision point. So how, did, how do you, because that's a, 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 it's a soon body left decision point in right. how you're going to execute a marketing strategy for a brand specifically right. like Miller Lite that was so big at the time relative to the rest of the brands. I mean, we're talking about the top five brands roughly in beer at that, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, craft brand haven't had the resurgence yet that they, that they currently have. 
Um, and so to think about it differently, what, what was the catalyst for that moment inside? I'm more interested in kind of the company culture that led to that. Well, um, it, it's a, it's really a two-part question: the company culture and the insights. You can take it in two parts. <laughs> let me let me let me talk about the insights process because that was that was I was the insights lead, so that's where I have the most uh, mo- I have the most insight into the insights process. And that's why we have here. <laughs> here. Good setup. And part of it was we had a large body of research that we developed through the '90s. A lot of that came into play here. Okay. And in particular, we had done a lot of uh, in-depth interviews. You know, we call them psychographic interviews, which is kind of marketing but just to learn you know, more about a brand's drinkers, who they are as people, what motivates them, why they choose the brands they choose. And it was really fascinating to learn that if you did these depth interviews with Bud Light drinkers, Miller Light drinkers, and Coors Light drinkers, you saw clear differences. These brands were sending out signals, whether it was deliberate strategic signals or just uh, stuff that was inadvertently in their marketing, that attracted a certain type of person. So give us a lay of the land of those three, because I think that's a, if you think about Bud Light versus Miller Light versus Coors Light, what did you learn that differentiated those three consumers? Uh, Bud Light drinkers were actually uh, people who, uh, they were fairly status conscious drinkers, okay. but they were also people who didn't think of themselves as high status people. And they actually looked, looked at the world as a place that, uh, you know, we summarized their attitude, their collective attitude as, Life's rules weren't written for guys like me, and the only way I'll ever get what I want is by breaking the rules. And Bud Light had this brilliant campaign on the air with guys scamming for a beer, breaking the rules to get their Bud Light. Got it. It was, it was very effective in attracting that sort of person. Uh, Miller Light drinkers tended to be more, much more about uh, conversation, catching up with their buddies, this, this feeling of personal connection, mutual connection between people. And uh, how, did that sh- sorry, how did that show up in the research? What were some of the things that came back from the psychographic studies or from the focus groups that allowed you to kind of go, that's, that's a spot for us, that's a sweet spot for us? Well, uh, that really wasn't the sweet spot for the campaign. That was, that was Sorry, they set up. Well, yeah. yeah, because what became a sweet spot for the campaign is we asked ourselves, we've, we've done this research with Miller Drinkers, Miller Light, Miller High Life, Miller Genuine Draft, Bud and Bud Light, Coors Light. Is there anything that the drinkers of the three Miller trademark brands have in common that differentiates them from Bud Light drinkers? And that was the insight about Miller Light drinkers of any of the three brands tended to be more interdirected people. Basically, people who made their own choices, their more personal choices. Bud and Bud Light were more other-directed people, people who tended to go along with the group, uh, fit in, things like that. So we decided, since this was supposed to be Miller trademark campaign, the stake we were going to put in the ground is we were going to speak to these interdirected people, reinforce Miller Lite as the best brand for them. And so interdirected is another psychographic term, another sort of marketing ease, but it's just people who, who have a stronger sense of independence. Yeah, so on that piece, I'm actually thinking about the difference in those two consumer groups. We, in order for Miller Lite to grow, you kind of have to beat Coors Light, number one, but you also have to take from Bud Light. And if Bud Light consumers are about status, about what other people think, did you really think that you were going to be able to capture them with this focus on um, standing out from the crowd? Um, well, we, we didn't necessarily think we would. The, the rationale was that Bud Light has put a clear stake in the ground in terms of the sort of more group orientation, other directedness. Yeah. But And most of their drinkers would never switch. But there are also people drinking Bud Light just because nobody was speaking to them. Yeah. They might have been a more interdirected, independent person, but you know there was no beer brand saying this is for you. 
And so some of them were drinking Bud Light just because that was a default choice. Yeah. So we knew we'd get some of them. We figured we'd get some Coors Light drinkers. So, uh, yeah, we yeah. never expected to get Bud Light, too many Bud Light drinkers. Did the, the, the focus on standing out from the crowd and, and not following along with the crowd in, in some ways change the way that people looked at status? Right? So, if, um, you know, you're choosing, but by calling out the fact that that's a default choice that you're just drinking because everybody else is drinking it, changes the way they look at status and actually, actually makes them maybe choose a different brand. Did that? Uh, I don't think we we accomplished anything quite that lofty, <laughs> but uh, uh, we we definitely had people I think saying, "Yeah, why am I drinking Bud Light?" Yeah, a few of them. And when you when you posed that question, then what were some of the responses that you got back, or specifically like the one to one interviews with consumers? What when they did have that kind of self actualization questioning moment of why am I doing what I'm doing? Which is, you know, a great question in marketing, especially when, you know, it becomes a default choice like Bud Light was at that time. What was their self-reflective moment? Did, you know, did they have one? Did they understand it? Well, we, we saw more of that, not so much in the, uh, the psychographic interviews is, is when we did blind taste tests. Ah, okay. Because a big part of the strategy was, um, yeah, you should make an independent choice. That was our message. But just what was it you're choosing when you choose Miller Lite? Mm -hmm. And there's two components to that. This was the time of the low-carb craze, and Miller Lite had half the carbs of Bud Light, a happy coincidence in some ways. Right. So there was no question we got a big tailwind from that low-carb benefit that we were offering. And so that was kind of a macro-consumer trend that was happening at that moment that you know you were able to kind of slipstream right. into. Definitely gave us a great tailwind to ride on. Okay. And the other piece of it was in blind taste tests, Miller Lite had always had more taste than Bud Light. Uh, now, some people like having less taste in their beer. Some people wanted the lighter taste. And how would you define taste? Just we, well, we, it was up to the consumer to define it. Like a lot of research, we just put the words out there, and it's whatever it means to the individual consumer. Okay. But if you did a blind taste test with Miller Lite and Bud Light, uh, about two-thirds of the people would say Miller Lite had more taste, but only about half preferred Miller Lite because you had that chunk of people saying, I don't want more taste in my light beer. That's why I drink a light beer. And the truth is, for many years, we've done a sort of hand-wringing over, what are we going to do? We have more taste, and most of these beer drinkers don't want more taste. And part of this, you know, because of the spirit that Norman instilled in what we were doing, we said, let's stop being, you know, worrying about having more taste and whether or not it's a weakness or a strength. Let's go out there and talk about it like it's a strength. Yeah, I'm really interested in that piece as well, because it kind of bleeds into a little bit of the culture at the time, the cultural shift that, that you were talking about with Norman coming into the business. Um, but this idea that I'm pretty passionate about is that any great brand has to have a high degree of self-awareness and an understanding of who they are and a clear vision of where they're going to go. And if you can kind of answer those, answer those questions internally about your company or your brand, you'll actually be more truthful to the consumer than the mm -hmm. end user at the end of the day. You'll be coming from a place of honesty. Um, and that that will resonate with consumers, and that leads to an emotional connection. That right. It's not easy, but the understanding of starting and knowing who you are, and it's not that different than an interpersonal relationship. Of, you know, if you know truly who you are, right. you're going to be much more able to connect with somebody on a personal level. And um, you know, So talk a little bit about that. Once you, once you kind of start to, to almost triangulate some of these core values, traits, principles of the brand, and then layer over this idea that the overall company was going to start challenging the status quo, challenging the, the number one competitor, um, you know, what starts to happen at that point that leads to some of the creative campaigns? Well, um, 
the, the core of the briefing was this idea about independence and more taste. And really, the, we launched the campaign with a spot called Domino's, which was an amazing spot, Super Bowl quality, but we didn't wait for the Super Bowl. We launched it in the fall of 2003. And uh, it really That's just it put a stake in the ground as far as interdirectedness. Yeah. And people had concerns, legitimate concerns, that are we over-communicating this? I mean, this is still a big brand. Will people accept that a big brand can stand for that kind of independence? I mean, doesn't, aren't those people drawn to smaller brands? Describe the Domino's campaign a little bit, sure. specifically the ad, because it's sure. so great. And I know you can still find it on YouTube, so for those of you listening, go look it up. It's great. But yeah, Basically, it starts with a, a shot of a single guy's head against the sky. He's staring off camera. And as the camera, he starts to fall forward. And as you, the camera pulls back, you see he's standing in a line like a, a series of dominoes and it's this piece of high cinema there's like aerial photography they show it from different angles from ground level as this wave of falling people right. just passes through this entire city and there's some really great moments where a, a guy gets on a bus and falls into the front door the people on the bus fall down all the way down to the back door and fall out the back door and it continues and it just gets goofier and goofier as we see this entire city these lines of people just falling and then the line goes into a bar and the last guy in line has just ordered his beer and the bartender puts down a Miller Lite in front of him, and he sees the wave coming at him, and he steps aside. Yeah. So the second last guy has fallen to the floor, and he's looking at all these guys like, you know, what is going on here? And the line was, uh, you can wait in line and take what they give you, or you can make your own choice, something right. to that effect. Yeah. Like Miller Lite, good call. I think the most interesting, Joe, I mean, feel free to jump in here. I think the most interesting thing for me um, when looking at the early parts of that campaign is is the multiple messages that you're able to pull out um, within the creative. The idea of humor is is strong through that. The idea of kind of almost highbrow humor as well. Um, the idea of separating the brands and creating a division point without overtly calling out the the, challenge, the, the brand that you're challenging specifically, right. but everybody kind of knows what it is when you take a step. But it also challenged the viewer and the consumer to go, what am I, what am I watching here? And then you right. had to wait for it. And, um, you know, I think, especially in that time period where that's a risk, the idea of like, are you going to let, you know, like 25 seconds go by before you really understand <laughs> what the hell is going on here? And then, oh, oh, got it. And that's, that for me was kind of part of the positioning of the brand, and, yeah. you know, um, especially even in later years. One other thing to add to that conversation, and I think you alluded to it earlier, Mike, is uh, the rallying of the Strinder Network. So I think that ad and the overall message, um, correct me if I'm wrong, seemed to speak not only to consumers, but to distributors, to, to rally the distributor network to say, Absolutely. Oh, sell Miller Lite. Right. Um, and so that success is in part the message takeaway to consumers to, to actually behave differently and stand out and make their own choice, but also for distributors to say, hey, this is something that we need to get behind and right. this is going to be a success and therefore creating that self-fulfilling prophecy of there, you have 700 distributors running out there pushing Miller Lite that creates that momentum that consumers right. pick up as well. Well, I think... To be honest, part of what I think inspired the distributors, a lot, a lot of things inspired the distributors about this, but it was a very high production value, very expensive ad to shoot. And for years, Miller had been, you know, we needed to be cost conscious. And, you know, if the agency came in with an ad that needed a lot of special effects that would cost a lot of money, we said, you know, can't we come up with something without the special effects that won't cost so much? We took the opposite route here. It was, it was if I remember the numbers correctly, this ad cost about three or four times what we normally spent on an ad for production. But we, we went with it. We said, let's go. So what was that risk associated with repositioning it 
Miller Lite, the Miller trademark as a able challenger, uh, the challenger brand, right? because it is it was the biggest brand in the portfolio. And it's not easy to spend three times you know exactly. that when I've not done that before. So that's huge, and I think that that's that'll be interesting to a lot of people listening to this podcast that are working on brands day in day out and are faced with that moment where they go. Okay, do, are we clear enough on our vision and who we are and who the target consumer is that we can make uh, a significant change in our investment structure to go after that consumer and to, and to go after that positioning sure. and to make that creative? So I'm interested. Well, well with, with that said, um, most of the ads in the campaign weren't necessarily more expensive. But the fact that that was more expensive, I think the most important piece was the message to distributors. We are willing to invest in this. We are willing to change what we do. We are committed to this. And come along with us, please. And they did. And, and part of that risk, though, I think goes back to the point of it is a really big brand. And you're telling consumers to step out of line and choose for themselves. Did, was there a conversation in the room at some point that this could actually backfire and cause people to choose brands other than Miller Lite? Uh, to that effect, something to that effect there was, yeah. I mean, not, not that it would actually motivate people to choose other brands, but just that it strained credibility. Yeah. yeah. And my argument at the time was, I supported the, the ad myself, my argument was Jack Daniels is a big, big brand. Jack Daniels owns independence in its category, and I don't think that's ever been a problem for them. It's, you know, these, these things are not necessarily rational. The intangibles that you associate with a brand, uh, they, 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 they work at the emotional level, not necessarily at the rational level. And so uh, that turned out to be not an issue. Uh, my pushback at the time was, I thought, this is a great ad to watch once. Are people, you know, this is when it's still on storyboards. Right. Yeah. This is a, will be a great ad to watch once, but are people going to want to see this again and again? I mean, once you've seen it, isn't the, isn't the joke over? I was so wrong. I still sometimes, when I'm bored, will go on YouTube and watch it just <laughs> right. because it's so it great. Is, it is fun to watch. Yes. Yeah. And just one follow-up question on that. So you have this, this launch, and the idea is starting to see, and you're spending a ton of money on this, on the early burn of the campaign and the creative. Um, but it's... But it's it's just the beginning. There are other pieces of the of the what I would call a quote unquote campaign that yes. start to come out of that. And you touched her, uh, you know earlier in the conversation about taste challenge and other things. So what were some of the other things besides just the television creative at that right. time period um, that you did to extend that positioning right. and start to reach consumers with that message? Well, there, there was there were uh, fifteen second spots that were very simple and straightforward, just talking about our carb advantage. Yeah. We, we didn't really talk about that in the big high profile TV stuff, but we just say you know half the carbs of Bud Light. Right. Uh, we also had these in-bar taste challenges where we uh, had we hired uh, teams of uh, people to go uh, into bars, spot people drinking Bud Light or Miller Light, and ask them if they're interested in participating in a little taste test. So they put sleeves over the bottles so they couldn't see what they were drinking, and said, "Which one of these has more taste?" And as I said, probably about two thirds of the people we spoke to said this has more taste. Then when it was revealed that they just chosen Miller Lite, you know, the majority of Bud Light drinkers said, "Well, whatever, I'm still going to drink Bud Light." But there were actually people who said that they felt almost embarrassed <laughs> that they were drinking this weaker beer, and that uh, now whether or not they followed through or not is another question. But they did say, "I'm going to start drinking Miller Lite." And this wasn't a, that's not a, I mean, let's be honest, that wasn't a, re- a new idea in beverage. Soft drinks had done that before, right. but it seemed at the time period, and you know that it was new for beer. It was new in this landscape, new for that time period, new for these brands, and probably new for Bud Light to have somebody come up and directly challenge them on taste profile versus just television creative and kind of overall positioning and to to bring that attribute forward um, Mm -hmm. seemed new uh, at the time period. Well, it it was in part because 
a big part of the reason Bud Light and Coors Light had trumped Miller Light in the early 90s was they had less taste. And right. a lot of light beer drinkers don't want that much taste. So, yeah, and we weren't going to talk about our taste advantage because we thought of it as a disadvantage. And, and that, that was the big difference there. We said, let's, you know, as you said, you have to know who you are and what you're all about. Let's stop being worried about having more taste. And yes, the majority of light beer drinkers don't want more taste, but there's a large minority that do. Yeah. So let's talk to them. That's a really important factor about really figuring out how do you take your attributes and position as a strength right. as a, as a, instead of thinking of them as a disadvantage. Right. So that's great. Well, one question I have is, if I remember correctly, Miller Light was down low to mid single digits for uh, at the time and then and after this campaign launched and all the everything that came with it we got to what, something like one or two years of double digit growth yep. now when, when did you know it was a success when did you see that turnaround happening prior to those numbers came out or did you know the, the, the things, things started turning around right away the, the, the I, you know again to give credit to the low carb tailwind those 15-second spots hit the air uh, before the Domino's launch campaign. I'm not sure how much sooner, maybe a month or two. Okay. Things actually started ticking up when we, when we yeah. put those on the air. But uh, from, almost from day one, we put Domino's on, and the, the thing just took off. Yeah. So it was, it was a combination of the, the big high-profile campaign, which provides the imagery, the tactical stuff, which provides the more rational, functional benefits, and it, it all came together beautifully. Yeah. So another question that we were talking about before, uh, as we were prepping for this, was about the response, right? So if I remember correctly, again, 2005, Bud Light came in, uh, Anheuser-Busch, and just went kind of nuts on price. They started discounting like crazy. Do you think that was a direct response to the threat that Miller Light posed? Um, I, I think it absolutely was. Um, yeah, there was a huge price cut. They took something like, a, I forget, we did an estimate. I think it was something like a billion dollars worth of value out of the industry between right. their price cut and the fact that we and Coors Light were forced to match. Yeah. But that really did a lot to disrupt our momentum at that point. Yeah. So that, that was all about disrupting momentum and trying to get people back into their <laughs> trying to drink. Right. Try to drink Bud Light. Let's not lose any more Bud Light drinkers by giving them a reason to continue drinking it. And it's not, an, you know, from standpoint, it's not an irrational response, right? Challenger brand comes up, we want to hold our market space, you know, we have a positioning that we believe in, where it can, and they use the strength, which yeah. is, you know, they had price cat and category leadership. And they had the scale. They had the scale to be able to do that. Um, I, you know, it, it's a great case study because in essence, it's the last time, really, I think, in the beer world, in my point of view, and in the categories, specifically in the United States, and it's happening in other places of the world now, but this idea of the consolidation had come to fruition, the brands had started to settle in a certain space, and here's Miller Lite sitting in a space where it could be a challenger, maybe not, maybe it's going to be a, a loss leader, uh, maybe it's going to be a traffic driver, and they're going to ride in, in the slipstream of, of Bud Light and just kind of muddle along. A cultural change happens. You start to think differently about it. You throw in this challenger mentality, not just for the brand, but for the overall company, which leads to this directive of, no, we're going to do this. The alternative, and what you won't know, is had you chosen to not do this, you know, where would it be? And so, while it didn't last for years and years and years, and the, the beer industry has dramatically changed since this point, you know, it is a great case study on top-tier brands that, you know, are owning 
what, 85% of the, of the U.S. beer market at that time period, doing significant battle on price, on positioning, against consumers, street-level right. ground tactics, taste challenges. Um, yeah, I don't. Maybe we're going to get to that point sometime again, but I don't see it anytime in the future. So I, what are kind of your key lessons and takeaways as you think back around that time? And, and how how would you use it as a case study for other brand managers and brand directors, people that might listen to this podcast about, you know, that are in similar industries or are looking ahead to potentially a challenge like that? Well, I think you basically hit on it. It really is. Thank you. you. Know, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> knowing like who you do, are. I like to give you the yeah. question and the answer at the same time. Yeah, knowing who you are and, 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 and being, being <clears throat> proud of that no matter what. I mean, um, that's, when Bud Light did the judo flip on us in the early 1990s, what I call the judo flip was, they, they said, let's, let's go after this, this you know, lower taste. And that's who they were, and that's what they, they didn't push it overtly, but they, that's what, that was a big selling point for them. And, and we just said, let's, let's take pride in what we are. Mm-hmm. You know, as a number two, we are the able challenger. We're never going to be the champion. Challenger is a great thing to be, too. Yeah. They're uh, looking at the numbers. It's fascinating how things have changed since then. In 2002, the top five brands in the U.S., uh, Budweiser, Bud Light, Mill Light, Coors Light, and Corona commanded 51 and a half share points. And if you look at it today, it's under 41. So 10, 10 point uh, share loss by the collective top five brands um, is amazing since then. Do you know, just kind of your expertise on the beer market, what led to that huge shift? And I think it's partially a little bit about these brands and what they've done, but also a lot about uh, the you know what's come since and craft. And craft and imports have taken most of that, yeah. yeah. And it goes to the other, the other piece of the insight, which I didn't touch on earlier. This whole thing about... Um, Miller trademark drinkers historically have been more interdirected, more independent thinking. The millennial generation started turning 21 right around the year 2000, 2001. Okay. And millennials really, I don't know that they were interdirected per se, but they aspired to be. You know, when you're, when you're 21, 22 years old, very few people have enough confidence to truly be out there making independent choices. But it was... At, at minimum, something they aspired to. So we thought this was a happy convergence. We've got this, something that we've always been about, that our consumers have always been about. We, we need to speak to that, and we've got a generation coming of age that really will be motivated by that. And I think that's a big part of why we were successful, but a big part of why Kraft has sort of taken the lead from the big brewers, including Miller now to some extent, is because they, they have that independence that... Uh, it's 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 difficult for a big brand, even when you're speaking emotionally, uh, to say we are as independent as a little craft brewer. <laughs> and so, do you think consumers look at the craft category? And for the I mean, we can spend another whole podcast talking about this, and maybe we will at some point. But the idea of uh, that self-reflective moment—you know, everybody likes to see themselves reflected in the choices that they make. Um, on anything, and so did craft give that to consumers at a time period where the generational you know, that generation, the millennial generation was coming up and needed that, and then they provided it for it at that right moment. So you see this inflection point of an industry changing because the products that are coming out, the quote-unquote innovation from hundreds of new breweries starts to give them that choice. Uh, I'm on record as saying that, you know, the, the craft turnaround that happened in the early 2000s was almost a direct result, in many ways, of millennials coming of age, because craft values really resonate with them. There's, there's another thing that I've been uh, talking about a lot recently uh, in other venues. Uh, 
I don't know if I coined this term or not, but it's, there's, a, there's a, an idea called creative rebellion. Uh, that millennials basically traditional rebellion doesn't appeal to millennials the whole you know James Dean too cool for school sneak out and smoke cigarettes or do other things that we won't talk about here <laughs> but it's been replaced by something they call it'd be a lot easier if it did yeah but it's been replaced by something it's it's creative rebellion they, 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 they have no need to rebel against authority figures because they get along well with authority figures and so uh a lot of craft brands that emerged in the 90s really did a good job of projecting what I call creative rebellion, and it really caused the whole category to resonate with Yeah, so find that a little bit more, because I'm interested in that term of creative rebellion. Yeah, traditional rebellion tends to be, uh, well, both stem from a desire for self-expression, okay. which is something everybody has when they're in their teens and young adults, they're, they're coming of age, they want to express who they are. People who feel a sort of sense of disempowerment, I don't have a lot of control over my life, other people do, outside forces do, rebellion, traditional rebellion is, is, is their outlet for that. Millennials came of age feeling very empowered. Uh, some people see it as entitlement, I don't think that's the right word, I think it's empowerment, but when you feel empowered, you, don't, you express yourself actively, positively. There is something about myself I can express. One of the, I did a bunch of uh, consumer interviews with people in their 20s on yeah. this topic, and I still remember one guy saying that uh, traditional rebellion didn't appeal to him because it says, you're not doing you, you're just not doing your parents. Whereas creative people are doing you, <laughs> there is something there, right. and they're expressing that something. So they're rebellion with thought, right. instead of just uh, <laughs> right. kind of good what they're right. And so initially, when I first started you know, going through these interviews and analyzing this stuff, I said, uh, so, so rebellion is out. So then I started, the subsequent interviews, I talked to these people and say, so, you, you know, how do you feel about rebellion? And they say, oh, you know, rebellion's really cool. And I thought, oh, does this negate my, my initial conclusion, my tentative conclusion? But then when they talk about rebellion, it was apparent they didn't mean traditional rebellion. They meant doing something creative to improve the status quo. And so it's where traditional rebellion is kind of angry and disengaged, Creative rebellion is positive and engaged. I think we're going to need another podcast just on that topic. Yeah, that's a great topic. I, wanted to, I wish we could dig into that a bit more. Uh, so you've done a pretty neat content. <laughs> Amazing amount of work and beer over the years, and you've uh, been working on a book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, it's it has not been floated to publishers yet. It's still the, I just completed the first. Try to sell it today. Please do. <laughs> Except I can't tell people where to find it, right. publish it because. <laughs> but the first draft Step of the manuscript is done. In the <laughs> yes, the title is the rise and fall of the beer commercial, because for many years, uh, you know, starting in about the 1970s, uh, big beer relied on big advertising budgets and really. Uh, really some really creative, great advertising to, to move their brands. And so the beer commercial was ascendant as the key marketing tool to sell beer. And when craft beer started taking share from big beer, it was very disconcerting to those of us. I was still in big beer at the time. And it said, you know, this, they don't even advertise. Right. And they're taking share away from us. And so it's like it, it, it seemed, at least in the surface, that the beer commercial had fallen mm -hmm. as, a, as the most important tool for building brands. Right. And uh, you can you can make the case that it will never be the same again. But then there's always Dos Equis and the most interesting man in the world proving that a great TV campaign can still move cases. Right. So, but nonetheless, what I examine in the book is how the themes that were most effective in beer commercials changed over time. Themes that worked in the 70s 
failed utterly in the 80s and new themes emerged. So I, I connect those themes to what's going on in the larger culture. Yeah, and so do you believe that that's a, uh, because of how big the beer industry was and how much money it spent and how reflective it was of the culture of the time, so from the 70s to the, to the 2000s, um, could we make the assumption by reading your book that whilst we could also learn kind of the flow of generational influence, and you touched on this already about millennials, but how we can follow the pathway through what is effectively a new a new marketing horizon, a new marketing landscape, and that's what we're doing now is figuring out, you know, with all the social media, with the, you know, um, the differences in television and viewing patterns and how people will consume media and how they consume advertising now, it is a brave new world out there for, for large brands, and they have to really rethink about you know, what their marketing mix looks like, where the value is, and so but a lot of that goes back to being able to peek around the corner and see what's coming next, and so, you know, I'm assuming that that's kind of the direction you're going in here. Well, it, it, one of my, I don't know if it's a pet peeve or whatever, but I talk, you know, it, it, it's a very confusing landscape out there with all the new media, yeah. and people are playing catch-up a little bit and trying to understand that, but my premise in the book, and my premise in a lot of my consulting work is still that but what's the content? You're all worried about how you're going to deliver your message, and you've lost focus on what the message should be. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and that's part of my argument is that brand personality has been a huge driver of successful brands, and, and it's uh, that brand personality has has to connect to an authentic brand story and and, and, a, and a narrative. So, the narratives that have worked over time have changed. And my premise is that, you know what, if you look at a brand like a, a Sierra Nevada, there's no, no TV advertising, certainly, hardly any marketing, but its label communicates a clear personality and clear attitudes. It's an explorer brand. It's, it shows a very tranquil mountain-type scene. It, there's, a, there's emotional connotations there. That's just as powerful as emotions you communicate in the TV ad. It just doesn't reach as many people. Right. But Sierra Nevada has no interest in reaching as many people as Miller Lite. They don't need to. So you can communicate the personality and those feelings through a big budget TV campaign if you want to reach 30 million people. Uh, you can communicate it through the bottle and the label in your hand if you just want to reach a smaller segment. So actually thinking about what it comes next, I think it's interesting about how this industry has transformed to the point where there's thousands of competitors um, that are just new over the last five, 10 years. So much of them are growing in part because of that uh, different attitude of millennials. <clears throat> you know, the fact that they are being more choiceful about what they want to drink, but also you know, thinking about from a, uh, how brands grow, Byron Sharp, yeah. a lot of it is just availability. If you look at the beer shelf today mm-hmm. versus what it looked like 20 years ago, it's radically different. And so mm-hmm. the availability that's of beers, across, that's across, that's across all yeah. categories. And so, but I think you, uh, the last piece of it though is the brand story uh, and the brands that are going to last um, are going to be the ones that have that communicate something and I think a lot of marketers probably falling in love with their growth they're getting through distribution gains right. um, so they probably are going to have to be careful of are they, do they are they building something that is lasting and are they going to be able to survive through the next shakeout in the industry which is probably going to come in the next five to ten years right, right. um yeah, I think that uh, a lot of these newer ones, these smaller ones, they're going to survive and thrive just fine because they they have even 
more confined ambitions. They basically want to, they're basically brew pubs that just say, I want to be the brewery for my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's their goal. And nobody else can trump that. If you're in a certain neighborhood, a certain city, and, and you're, you're all about what that neighborhood is about, there's no way an outside brand can come in and, and, and appeal to that sort of mindset. So mm-hmm. I think they'll all be successful. Um, I think the big guys, the big guys are hurting right now. You know, I think, I forget the number, but six or eight out of the top 10 craft brewers were down last year or at least their flagships were. Yeah. Um, I think they're going to survive and do just fine in the long run because they got where they are by knowing who they are and having great brand stories and presenting them. Yeah. And so I think there's, I think it's, they're going to tinker around the edges and that's all they need to do to be fine. I actually think some of the ones in the middle are going to struggle because yeah. I think that they, a lot of them have been riding the uh, craft beer wave. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they, they don't have good brands and good beer, but I don't think they've done enough work to really say, who are we, and how do we communicate that? Yeah. Final question. So I'm a new brand manager, new brand director, highly competitive category, dynamic shifts. What are the two or three things I need to start looking at immediately if I'm new to my brand and understand? I think you have to understand uh, your brand story. You have to understand your drinker's story. They do have a collective story. Not all of them, but there's enough of, enough common themes that they do. And then you have to understand how they connect. What is it about my brand story that has been connecting with certain, and what is it about the consumer story that kind of meshes like a puzzle piece? Yeah. That's a good spot to end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is awesome. Thank you. For Thank you. And, um, yeah, well, it's fun for a bunch of brand nerds <laughs> sit around and talk about this. This has been fun conversation. Thank you again. We're keep on talking about this for uh, another two hours after we're done for They might be like, all right, we're going to cut this off and let people get back to their day. But I think, Stay uh, tuned for the lunch conversation exactly. podcast. <laughs> we're going to have to have a couple beers and hammer the rest of this out. That's right. Uh, but thank you again, Mike. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll get to have you on again at some point in the near future. I'd love to. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Thanks Ray. Cheers.